0: Person. Thankful for all of you joining us online. I believe in Jesus and I believe in the church. I believe in Jesus who is the one who came who lived a flawless life, perfect, and everything he did spread goodness everywhere, died, rose from the dead, and then launched the church. I believe in the church and all of its flaws that Jesus is the one who launched the church, birthed the church, empowered the church to be beacons of light throughout the entire world. So today I want to talk about the, when sacred and secular clash. I want to talk about the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. But before I get there, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it's just a verse I love and I think you need to hold it close to you. And it says this, let live such good lives among the pagans. I don't know if we would say it like that. We may say live such good lives among those disconnected from faith or disconnected from God or people who aren't interested in God, but the way it's said in 1 Peter 2 verse 12 is live such good lives among the pagans. If we're not careful, what happens is we try to live good lives away from the pagans, not among the pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Just because other people may see you or us as their enemy doesn't mean that we have to save their hours. We are called to live good lives among people. All right, so I'm sure most of us have tried the game of chess before. We've had the board out, we've played chess. I don't know if you're good or not, but there are chess masters around the world, and sometimes what they do is they will play multiple people at the same time. So they'll get in space where there may be five chess boards around and everyone else is just playing their game but the chess master is playing all of them. So the chess master will go to one board and make a move, go to the next board, make a move. Everyone else is just playing their game but the chess master, like myself, we go around the room and play everybody. So What I'm doing today in Acts chapter 17, I'm going to take you on a journey in which we're going to a few different places. And then when I get to Athens in Acts chapter 17, you're going to see Paul who is able to go into different places where people think differently, probably speak differently. And he's the one that is kind of going to each place the way they play the game of life. And Paul's going to be present and Paul's going to have the same character and the same message everywhere he goes. So he's going to be among the Jews in a synagogue and he's going to be among God-fearing Greeks and he's going to be among philosophers. And everywhere he goes, same character, same mission, same message, but different places. Athens is a place for sacred and secular clash. So when I say the word sacred... I'm talking about like a religious place, or when you think sacred, you probably think reverence. When you think secular, most of us, it's like a negative connotation, secular is like worldly. So sacred, that which is of God, sacred is the place of reverence, and secular is a worldly place. So for some of us sacred, you may think a church building, maybe old ancient churches, or maybe sacred, you think places like the beach. So you got sacred is a place where you connect with God in nature. Maybe secular is like a shopping mall. And I'm not anti-shopping mall. I'm just saying a place where you're bombarded by uh, marketing and advertisement and buy me and you need me. Sacred, you may think mountains. We just have people return from Trek. You may think mountains. We're surrounded by the beauty of God. Or secular, you may think a place like Las Vegas. Sacred, you may think ribs with friends in Memphis. Memphis, these things are like sacred to us. Secular, you may think like Times Square, where you're surrounded by lights and glamour. Sacred, you may think Cowboys Stadium, right? Secular, you may think Alabama Stadium. Do you, are you with me now? Okay. I want you to wrap your mind around this, right? Sacred is like the religious place, a place of reverence. Secular is that of the world, and Athens is the place where they clash. Now, here's here's what happens. A lot of times what happens is secular is pushing away from that which is sacred, and that which is sacred is pushing away from that which is secular. And Jesus is the one who messes this whole thing up. Because Jesus lived in a time when religious people Anything they saw as secular, they pushed away from it. Religious people didn't want anything to do with tax collectors. Jesus did. Religious people didn't want anything to do with going into colonies with those who were suffering from leprosy. Jesus did. People who uh, were sacred didn't go to places like Caesarea Philippi. Jesus didn't just go to Caesarea Philippi. It's where he gave one of the best lessons on what it means to be the church in the world. So for Jesus, his idea wasn't that the sacred gets away from the secular, but that the sacred invades the secular. It's not sacred against the secular, it's sacred with. It's the God who is with. It's a sacred that is for the world. And when you come into life with God, wherever you go, you take this sacred into that place. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, it starts off, there's uh, this event in Philippi. And we're going to spend a lot more time in the book of Philippians here later this year. In Philippians chapter 16, verse 23 and 24, here's how the, here's how the mission trip starts off. After they had been severely flogged, okay, so Paul and his buddies, severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and fasten their feet in the stocks. And not only are they flogged, they are seen as like the worst of criminals. They're put in the inner place where it's going to be so hard for them to escape or for somebody to come and rescue them. Some of us would have quit after the first place on the mission trip. They leave Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, just a few miles away. They go to Thessalonica, they are there, the gospel, they begin to preach, and then in verse 5 we read this in chapter 17. But the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's, Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So in Philippi, it's like they turn the world upside down, there's persecution. Thessalonica, is like they're turning the world upside down, there's persecution. From there, they go just a few miles to Berea. And in Berea, in Acts 17, verse 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Now at this point, some of us may need a sabbatical. Imagine Paul has gone from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea in a short period of time, having been flogged in the first place. So now, everywhere he goes, there are wounds, there are scars. In his mind, he knows that he is under attack everywhere he goes. So at this point, after Berea, the Bible doesn't tell you this, but you almost get the sense that they're like, okay, we've been in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, three cities that are pretty close together. We need to regroup for a minute. So we're going to send Paul far away, let's take him way down south to Athens, where it's going to be really hard for Paul to make a mess or to cause a riot in Athens. We're going to send him to Athens. We're going to regroup, and then Paul's going to wait for us to come meet him in Athens, So that's what you see in Acts 17, verse 15. Those who escorted Paul, some of your versions even say, took him far away, brought him as far away as Athens, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And I want to talk just for a few moments about the city of Athens. And this image right here is, uh, if you've ever been to Athens, this is it. Like anywhere you are in the city of Athens, you see up on the hill there is the Parthenon. Next to the Parthenon is a temple of Nike and a couple of other temples up there. And then there's Mars Hill, which we'll get to in just a moment, where there was the Areopagus. When you think Areopagus, I want you to think Supreme Court. Like these are people who are discerning of what philosophies are going to lead the city. And then all around that hill that you see up there by the Parthenon are all these places where people would come for school, like for all the philosophies of the world. The city of Athens was a very religious city. There are some scholars who believe it was the most religious city in the world at the time. And not monotheistic, it's not people who are worshipping Yahweh, it's all different kinds of gods were there. It's a city that was founded 1,500 years before Paul... And by the time Paul, they were it was a Greco-Roman city. It was Greek for a long time. The Roman Empire had conquered Athens, Greco-Roman. It had birthed some of the first forms of democracy and philosophical systems in Athens. It's where people that many of you have read about in school, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, it's where they practice philosophy. There's a marketplace of ideas around Mars Hill. In Athens, there were zealous Jews. Of course, the power of Rome was there and ancient philosophers. And these philosophers impacted the entire world because even if you didn't go and sit under their teaching, the way they taught influenced the entire world and it still does to this day. You had Socrates and people who followed the teachings of Socrates, which was, they were wisdom seekers. They believed the rationality was how one lived in connection to the universe. And how often do you see people today who pray to the universe or want to feed off the energy of the universe? This is not anything new. You have Epicureans who followed the teaching of Epicurus. who It was all about pleasure loving. It was, now, they were the first to accept women into their circles of philosophy. But for them, the highest good was happiness. You lived a life in which you tried to avoid pain. The highest good was happiness. They believed gods were a long way off. Gods didn't communicate with people. But the highest form of good was happiness. How much do you see this taught today? This is nothing new. You had this Hellenistic teaching. Which was basically a way of life of saying you're on a journey for your own life. Like you need to find the best version of you. Like this is nothing new. Like this has been taught by people for thousands of years. But be wisdom seeking, that connect with the universe, and you be the best version of you. And you you live for your own happiness. There in Athens there was a stoa which they have found stoists today in Athens, where they would have classrooms. One place you can walk into it today, 23 classrooms where people would come just to dialogue about philosophy. You had the Agora, which was a marketplace of ideas, and you had Mars Hill to Areopagus, which was much like the Supreme Court. So does the gospel of Jesus have a chance in a city like that? In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, here's what you read. And I'm going to walk through just three verses and unpack a few of these words for you. In Acts 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them, for his buddies to come to Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This word waiting is a word that means to remain in a place or state and await the event or the arrival of someone. So this right here is like waiting with expectation. You are anticipating something. So Paul is there in Athens waiting on a ship to arrive or his friends to arrive so that he can reconnect and get back on their mission. Waiting with expectation. A few weeks ago, the boys and I were flying back from Detroit. We had gone on one of our baseball trips. Casey was already back in Memphis. And it was the day before camp started. So I put us on standby. Because I thought, my boys probably don't want to get home at 10 o'clock at night. There's a chance I could have them home by noon, which then they can do laundry, they can rest, they can play, and they can get ready for camp the next day. So I put us on standby, and then they called us up and they said, "Uh, Mr. Ross, uh, we have two seats on standby. What would you like to do? And I said, well, will you let me put a 15 and a 12-year-old on this plane? And the people looked at each other and said, sure. So I did with no cell phone they got on a plane to fly back to memphis when i saw the plane back out i knew now is when i need to somehow communicate to my wife to their mother what i have done <laughs> so i thought should i text her call her or should i contact a friend of hers to relay this message for me like somebody who like maybe stacy hinkle like she can't get mad at stacy like maybe this is how i'm supposed to do this so uh, while eating Panda Express, I texted her. I said, hey, you may be mad, but here's what has happened. Uh, and we had a nice little exchange. But then Casey was the one who had to go to the airport. Now, thankfully, at the Memphis airport now, there's one terminal. So you know, and I knew, if they come off the plane, there's only one way they can exit. So she was there, right, where they crossed the line, the threshold, where they won't let you back into the airport. She was there, and I knew she would see them. It's just like, worst case scenario was, what if the plane was diverted, right? Like a medical emergency, and my boys end up in New Orleans with no cell phone. Like it's, Casey will never forgive me, all right? But she waited, texting me, waiting with expectation, waiting with her eyes open. So I want you just to kind of have that image of Paul. He's waiting. He's not just sitting on his hands. He's waiting with his eyes open for his friends to arrive. He's waiting with anticipation for these people to come back, to come and connect with him. And you have this word of distressed. Some of your versions, it may be provoked. It's irritable. The only other time you find this word in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which is the chapter of love, where Paul is the one who writes, love is not irritable, but Paul was irritable he looked around and he saw all these idols everywhere. It's just a city. It's like one big idol, like all these idols all over Athens. And he was provoked. And one of the lessons that Acts chapter 17 is going to teach us is how to channel anger in a way that honors God. In Acts chapter 17, verse 17, it says, so we argued in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. So if he's in the synagogue where he's talking to Jews about life with God, maybe even saying, look at everything around you, like all these other gods, and you're the ones who know there's only one God. Like, What kind of influence are you trying to be in the city of Athens? And then there's Greek-fearing, uh, God-fearing Greeks who were there, and then he's in the marketplace talking to other people. This word argued and some of your versions it may have dialogue or uh, some form of debate. This word argue is that he was reasoning and there was dialogue. And this is something that in our culture hasn't been completely lost, but almost lost. It's like now it's like any form of arguing we think wins and losses. Like who's going to win? Like ESPN, there's Stephen A. Smith. It's like, I have to win an argument. Or any kind of cable news you watch, they bring on two or three people where they just argue and yell at each other, like, I've got to make sure this person knows that their argument isn't better than mine. I have to win. I don't want you to think of arguing in Acts chapter 17 in that kind of way. This was dialogue. This was sharing information. This was healthy dialogue that will hopefully lead to more dialogue. In verse 18, you see a group of Ep- Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when you read this, I want you to think, like, okay, now like, Paul is among like the best of the best. Like The Jews didn't have a major impact in the city of Athens. It was a small little group of people. And now there are Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who are engaging him in conversation. And they began to debate him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others, uh, others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And here, this word debate is more like encounter. There's this encounter to engage in mutual pondering of a matter where Paul is listening to them and they are listening to him. It's not just that Paul went in saying, I have something you need to hear, but I don't care to hear what you have to say. There's this healthy dialogue, this encounter that is happening. And in verse 18, they call him a babbler. This word babbler is something birds would do. It literally meant seed pickers. This is how birds would walk around picking up seeds. And birds don't care what kind of seeds they pick up. They just pick up seeds. And this was a word that some philosophers would would use. Like, you're not even a good thinker. Like, you're just going around picking up any kind of idea you can, but you don't even know what to do with it. So some people are, like, using this as a word to describe what they think Paul is doing. And others wanted to hear more. And the way verse 18 ends is this. It says, they said this because Paul was preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. That for some, the reputation they were tossing at Paul is he was like a bird, just a seed picker. And for others, there was something about the character of Paul and the message he was delivering that made them want to hear more. All right, church, so what do you do and what do we do today when we are faced with opposition in a secular world? Because I'm not saying you do this, but we're in a culture now that is so quick when anybody opposes my idea or my convictions, either one, I'm going to write a Yelp review immediately, which isn't going to honor them, or two, I'm going to cancel them. Where we live right now in just a cancel culture where we are so quick, our culture is so quick to cancel people who either oppose their ideas or don't share their exact same convictions and just over the last few years, we've had, I think mean, you've seen this in the news, people have canceled Netflix, NFL, Nike, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, politicians, churches, pastors. Republicans have canceled Democrats, Democrats have canceled Republicans, independents have canceled everybody, right? I mean, like, we're just it's just a cancel culture. And when faced with opposition, what does Paul do? He didn't cancel people, he engaged he saw opposition as an opportunity to be light in a dark world. And we live in a time now where the world and secular culture is pressing against the sacred, and our response shouldn't be to press against the secular world, but to engage the secular world. The early church gave no energy to winning culture wars. None. They knew they had been redeemed by God to be light in the world when they were at their best. And for us, the verse we quote, maybe more than any other verse in the entire Bible, is for God so loved the world. But, but do we? Uh, for over 20 years of my life now, I've been on staff at churches. Since I was 20 years old, I've been on staff at churches. So most of my working life, all of my working life as an adult has been in a local church. And I'm thankful that the local churches I've been a part of have been super engaged in whatever community they have lived in. Hearts of service. And the one time I had a job that was what I would call to be like in the secular world, and I've told stories about it in the past, but I worked at CC's Pizza for over a year, my senior year of high school. At first they put me on the buffet where I was in charge of putting fresh pizzas out there. Then they moved me to, to the cutter job. And you may not think much about cutters at pizza places, but how many of you have ordered pizza before and you tried to pick up a slice and the whole pizza came up? It was my job to make sure that didn't happen. Put the butter around the crust. Do it as fast as you can, all right? The CC's was owned by a guy who, to this day, I consider him to be the greatest evangelist I've ever known. The CC's pizza I worked at for over 20 years has been the number one CC's in the entire world. It can seat over 400 people. I say that just to say we constantly had large crowds of people coming through CC's. And this guy, when he hired me, he said, I'm hiring you to come work at in which I would become the cutter, but he said, That's, I need you to know that what I want to do is run a business where we work hard, and there's good work ethic, but this is a mission field for God. People are going to come to know Jesus here. And he laid out a few principles for us. And he didn't demand every employee function by these principles, but for those of us who were like being discipled under him, it was, we go into each workday believing, that this is a day to be on a mission for God. That every person who comes into this store matters to God. That we are not going to give up on people. And that we're going to make the most of every opportunity. So there are a few of us who would meet at 7.30 in the morning, and CC's doesn't serve breakfast, but at 7.30 we would meet and we would pray and we would read our Bibles and we would ask God for opportunities. And then my senior year, One of the New Year's resolutions for our church, which was led by the owner of the CCs, is that in and through that church, we ask God for 100 people to come to know Jesus that year for 100 baptisms in the life of that church. And this wasn't a pass-fail kind of thing. Like, if we get it, it means God's honoring this. And if not, it just gave us a goal. Like, hey, here is something we want to pray toward. And through this, we're asking God to like cultivate in us a heart for, for people, a heart for evangelism, just to know Jesus and represent Jesus everywhere we go. In August of that year, we celebrated the 100th baptism in that church. And every night when we would close down CC's, Every night, I'm not exaggerating, every night somebody would be there to study the Bible. And I would sit in with his owner because there were some people who knew the Bible so when he would sit with them to talk to them about Jesus, he may use chapters and verses. But there were other people that he would sit down with that he wouldn't use chapters and verses because they didn't know the Bible. So if you said turn to Exodus 14 or turn to John chapter 3, like they wouldn't know where to go but he would speak faith to them in a way where he was still honoring principles of Scripture. So Paul preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 17 in which he does not quote any Scripture because he's among a bunch of philosophers if he would have said and you know in Deuteronomy or in Genesis they wouldn't have known what he was talking about but there were principles of faith that were present in this entire sermon that he gives. And we only get about two minutes worth. Surely it was longer than this. But in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, here's what it says. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And to have a voice in the Areopagus wasn't something that anybody could have. He had to be invited into this space. So remember, I'm talking about like Supreme Court justices. These are like the best of the best. People who are discerning ideas for the entire city. And Paul is invited to this place. I don't want you to think of Paul's on trial. He's not on trial. They have invited him to stand in front of these powerful people and to share his ideas. And I also want you to have a visual like what I showed you earlier of the city of Athens where anywhere Paul would have been with these people, If he's in the Areopagus, it was probably open space or on a porch and everywhere. They could have seen the Areopagus, which would have had the Parthenon. And in the Parthenon would have been the 50-foot statue of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So as Paul is teaching them this, they could see all these other places that represented paganism. And then it says this, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious He actually affirmed something about them. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And I bet they started laughing with each other. Like, oh yeah, we know exactly where that one is. Go down the street, take a right. It's right there on the corner to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. I can just see like Paul like almost pointing at the Parthenon like the God I'm telling you about right now doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one he made, all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out there appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach for him and find him though he is not far from any of us which is something none of them would teach about the gods that they served For in him we live and move and have our being. He actually quotes their philosophers when he says this. And as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Aren't you glad God has overlooked some of your ignorance? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn to God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's a remarkable message. In which Paul is holding together all these truths of God without, you know, hitting them over the head with the Bible. And that's how the sermon ends. And all you know, all we know about the city of Athens in the Bible is what I just read. As far as we know, Paul didn't write letters to the church of Athens. We don't know if a church even started in Athens after this. So you don't open your Bible and turn to 1st Athens or 2nd Athens, it doesn't exist. And Paul's going to leave Athens after this, and we don't know after he left, like, what happened to people? Was, was there any fruit that came from the message? We know a few people came to know Jesus, but was a church started? Would you call this a success? When it comes to wins and losses, sometimes it's abundantly clear, like, who won and who lost. I know some of you are Wheel of Fortune fans, and when you watch Wheel of Fortune, like, you know at the very end, like, who goes to the final round. Like, it's not debated. Like, a contestant doesn't challenge the results. Like, you know who won and you know who lost. When you go to a gri- Grizzly game, you know who won and you know who lost. Like, the scoreboard shows, you know who won and you lost. But if I were to ask you today, what was your favorite song that we sung together as a church, it's not as clear. Like, we can make different arguments about it. And when Paul left Athens, and we, we hear very little about Athens in the Bible. Here's what you read about Acts 17, 32 and 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. How about that? And also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And that's basically all we know. The Bible may not tell us a lot about Athens, but Athens tells us a lot about what it means to be the church in the world. That how Paul engaged that city is one of the most relevant messages for us as we engage the culture around us today. Because we cannot help save people in this world whom we despise or whom we think are our enemies. And the challenges in our world, they fuel cable news. But for people of the kingdom, they are opportunities for engagement. So I'll end with this. In the 5th century, there was a play in the Athenian, uh, there was a drama by a theater guy who wrote a play named uh, Eshetist. So there was this drama that started in the 5th century, and it's a drama, a form of theater, that would have been performed for years. And most people believe that in Paul's day, they would have been aware of this play. Because in the play, the god Apollo shows up and gives instructions to the Areopagus. In the play, the god Apollo shows up to give principles that are supposed to drive and lead the Areopagus, the people who were discerning over the teachings of the city. And one thing that God, Apollo, says in that play that would have been taught and would have been performed for centuries was this. When a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. And it's the one thing Paul went to the Areopagus to totally flip. Like this is a place that is taught for centuries that when man dies, that's it. Yet I'm bringing a teaching that lets you know when people die in Christ, they live forever. You know, if you were a church in almost any city of the Roman Empire, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus... Wherever you met, however you walked, a house church, or if you met out in the field, you knew that like the center of the city would have a pagan temple that was there. Like it was the center of everything. You would see it. And when churches would get together in the early church, I'm sure there were times, I don't know how long they would sing, but we assume there were songs that were sung. We know there was teaching and prayer. And we know they took the bread and the cup. And taking the bread and the cup in first century culture, taking the bread and the cup in a place like Athens, did a couple of things to you. One, it reminded you of your identity in God. This is who you are in God. And two, it reminded you of the mission that you were called to be a part of. You were being sent into the world as agents of God to be sacred space that invades the secular. This is who you are. So today, as we move to celebrate and to take the bread and the cup this morning, may we remember our identity in God. Reflect on it. Thank God for it. And may you also remember the mission God has called you to be a part of this week. We're agents of God called to leave this place to serve Jesus and represent the goodness of God everywhere we go. Bow your heads, close your eyes. For God, we're asking, I'm asking that the truth of Acts 17, that it will be something that will just encourage us today. I pray, God, in all the opposition we're facing in our lives, that somehow you'll redeem it and you'll give us eyes to see opportunities that are in front of us. I pray, God, especially for my friends today, that in moments when it's hard to represent goodness in the face of opposition, that you will give us the courage to represent Christ through it all. And as we take the bread and the cup today, we commit and we covenant again, thanking you that we get to be your people and your children. And God, as we take the bread and we take the cup and we touch them with our hands and we put them in our mouth, I pray, God, that we will use our hands, our bodies, the words that come out of us this week to represent represent you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll have an elder in the front and the back to receive you for prayer and here over the next few minutes make your way to one of our tables to take the bread and the cup.